Hello and welcome to the Hot Copy Podcast, a podcast for copywriters all about copywriting. Kate and I are often asked questions, questions about copywriting, questions about being a copywriter, questions about managing our businesses and our family life, questions about our dogs. Every now and then we like to pull out some of those questions and answer them and that's what today is all about. We're answering your questions in a very special Hot Copy Q&A. My name is Belinda Weaver. I am a copywriter. My business is Copyright Matters, and that's where I offer courses and coaches for copywriters of all levels. And with me, as always, is Kate Toon. Hello, my name is Kate Toon. I'm a copywriter, the founder of the Clever Copywriting School, and the Recipe for SEO Success online learning hub. So as I mentioned, Kate, today's all about questions and answers, and we have actually got quite a few questions lined up, so I say we just dig in. Yes, no faffing about. Let's get stuck in. Let's The first one submitted on our Facebook page is from Cherie Chambers. Thanks very much, Cherie. Cherie says, I am a web designer. I often outsource copywriting on behalf of my clients. What are some of the key general questions for a web designer or agency to ask their client during their initial brief so they can put together the best brief for their copywriter? Now, I have thoughts on this. Kate, did you want to go first? Oh, I think you're going first. You go first, I'll go second. By the way, Yappy Dog is back. Can you hear Yappy Dog? <laughs> of course we can. Dog. Oh, oh I love that dog. Not at all. <laughs> um, so this is like how do web designers get a brief from their clients so they can brief the copywriter. And basically, um, as a copywriter, I want to speak to the client directly because my brief is long and it's detailed and I I want to hear the answers myself from the client as much as possible um, I know that's not always possible and I know it's annoying for clients to have a double up so what I would do is I usually ask what questions the web designers already asked the client remove those from my brief and then just try and get in touch with the client directly because I think for a web designer to ask all the questions that I want to know it's more than they need to know yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of options here. I'll include a link in the episode note, a briefing template that I offer um, that you could obviously as a web designer send to your client. I think obviously it depends whether you, you want your copywriter to have direct access to your client because sometimes you won't want to um, and you'll want to kind of keep the relationship between you and the client. So that's a decision that you'll have to make. I think that probably the best thing to do is all get on a call together. Um, so maybe use something like Zoom um, and just all sit together. You can you can introduce the copywriter to the client. The client, the copywriter can go through their brief and get their answers, but you're also aware of what's been said. Um, and therefore you can kind of stay in the loop and stay in control. So it depends. I mean, I really think it depends whether you're subcontracting, whether you're just referring the work directly out to a copywriter. If you are referring the work directly out, I would kind of just kind of let them get on with it. The copywriter and the client should just chat, keep you in the loop. But yes, you said the double up is a pain. So I'll include a link to that brief and also to the subcontracting and referral uh, agreements that we use at the Clever Copywriting School. Because I think awesome. it's kind of what the relationship is as well. But yeah, the copywriter needs to be able to ask the questions, I think, just as a web designer. Just as a web designer would want to ask the client questions if it was being subcontracted out by a copywriter. Yeah. And I, like, I think there's always a lot of double up when you're talking about who is your target 
customer. There's always going to be double up in that. But a copywriter is, you know, also going to want to know the objectives of the piece, what it needs to do, calls to actions and things like that. But then the copywriter is going to want to go really deep on what the product and service is about and, and, and things like that. So that can really help to let the copywriter ask their own questions as much as possible. I like that idea of getting on a call together. Yeah, so I always think, you know, most things can be resolved a lot easier on a call than they can via relentless emails and Google Drive documents and, you know, sometimes just all getting together and talking can be the right solution. Gasp. All right, next question. Do you want to take this one? Yeah, so this one is from Maurizio F. Corte. I hope I'm saying that right. And he asks, I recently tried an Italian dashboard about SEO and inbound marketing. My question is, do I have to follow that dashboard to put my writing on the top of Google? Or can I hope to write well-positioned articles just answering my reader problems and following my heart and thoughts? In Italy, a very well-paid copywriter, millions of euros per year, writes his articles repeating six or seven times the same long-tail keyword before explaining what he has to write. His articles are top of the Google search results, but the worst Italian language I've ever read. Do I have to surrender to bad writing to get my money through my business? Ah, my pet favorite topic, this one. So I'll take it first and then see what you think. So look, I don't think writing useful uh, articles that answer reader problems and satisfy Google are mutually exclusive. I think you can do both. Um, So the way that I always approach writing blog content is to really be very clear about my focus. So as to your Italian well-paid writer, he's got his long-tail keyword. Well, I would have that too. I would sit down and really think about what is this article about? What am I trying to say? And what would someone type into Google if they wanted to read this article? And then I kind of write that phrase down on a post-it note and I put it away and I sit down and I write the best blog I possibly can, making it funny and witty and using great language and idioms and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Then I look back at my post-it note and say to myself, did I actually use any of these phrases that I was going to talk about? Is my focus phrase anywhere in the article? Um, And if it isn't, I go through and I add it, not necessarily six times at the start because that would be unbearable, but uh, just adding it in the appropriate places. Um, And a little plug here, if you haven't yet done my free SEO Nibbles course and my paid 10-day SEO challenge course, I do actually teach you how and where to use keywords. It's actually you don't need to use them that much. And I also provide with that a free blog post template that's pretty much a paint by numbers. It says, hey, use your focus keyword here. Don't use it here. Use a synonym here. Don't use it here. And that makes what having that structure, which sounds a little bit restrictive, actually is quite freeing because when you actually understand few places that you need to kind of try and use the keyword as a good indicator, it actually frees you up not to use it in the rest of the article and you're kind of free to just write something beautiful so you do not need to surrender to bad writing google likes good writing that's what the entire hummingbird algorithm update was about trying to force people to write richer more engaging articles that didn't just repeat long tail keywords again and again but of course there will always be that one person who does the wrong thing and does well with it but don't use him as your benchmark i'm sure he will have his day 
Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Actually, it's a bit always a bit gutting when you when you see someone succeeding by doing what is technically the wrong thing. But absolutely, it's a long it's a long tail game. Boom! And um, yeah, I think customers don't like that kind of content. They don't. And the thing is, there could be lots of other reasons why he's ranking really, really well, not actually the fact that he's doing that. You know, there's uh, causation and correlation. He could, it could be because he has, he's had a site for a long time. He has a lot of people linking to him. You know, there could be lots of other reasons that are actually the fact that he's doing this naughty thing could actually be impacting him, but he's got other things holding him in that top spot. Uh, so yeah, don't, don't do what he does. <laughs> Cool. Um, the next question, Angela Rogers um, asks, what percentage would you say your writing is intuitive versus process driven? I love this question. Is it okay to write something based off your gut feeling or should you have a logical reason research behind it? So I think this question classically embodies the difference between you and I, Kate. <laughs> Uh, I was just about to say that. Which I love it because um, it's mainly process for me. Um, now, the longer I have written copy, it feels more intuitive. But at the end of the day, I'm very technique oriented. I like reading about techniques, talking about techniques and digging into the nuts and bolts of construction of copy. And the more I do it, the more intuitive it feels. And it's it's not that there's no gut instinct for me writing um but personally i think it's good to understand the technique to see if maybe my gut instinct couldn't be improved a little bit um how do you approach these kate let's prepare to be shocked no i mean look i i do have processes i mean gosh i've built a whole i built a whole business around helping people with uh templates and i have a very sort of kind of vaguely restrictive process of my copywriting you know for flow um and you know i have four drafts we've talked about this on previous episodes skeleton first second third and final with proofing so but i guess the difference is is you know i'm not i don't use swipe files i probably should it would save me a lot of time i don't have templates i now i do think a lot more about formulas but that's really your influence belinda because i never really did that before so i do try and think about formulas a bit more but often, yes, I'll just sit down and just write whatever dribble pums and pours into my head and just get it down on paper. But I'm very much somebody who likes to start with like a messy lump of marble and, and hack away at it rather than having the pieces perfectly formed and slotting them into place. I like I like ed- I kind of like editing and moving stuff around and fiddling, and that's why that works for me. Just to be able to intuitively write whatever comes to mind, and then look at it fresh the next day and start hacking away at it. That's how I like to work. Which is really interesting because that's exactly how I write my first draft as well. Oh, there you go. <laughs> we got another question um, from Lyndall Talbot, so I'm going to jump ahead because she asked us to talk about our initial process, and that's kind of what we're we're doing at the moment. And I, you know, although I like um, the construction element of writing copy as well as all the process nerdy stuff around writing copy. Um, I kind of like to write with the brief and the client voice in my head. So I just have the brief and have their voice in my head and I just start writing and then I like to kind of move it around and organise it. You know what I do? I write with my own voice in my head and then spend a lot of time persuading the client that that's actually their voice. (laughs) (laughs) 
that a lot easier. Um, so the next question we have is from Brooke, Brooke Crawford, who's a, I call you Brooke, Brooke Crawford, who's a member of my clever copywriting community. And she asks, how do you put together a portfolio? Is there something better than Word to pull it together? Does it need a cover sheet and index? So obviously, it, uh, there's different types of portfolios. Uh, obviously, mine has always been purely online. So I have a page on my site, which you're more than welcome to look at, kate2incopywriter.com.au, which has um, samples, has, I've got an area of clients and all the different logos. Um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty standard. You click on a sample and it downloads a PDF of that piece of work. There's actually not much in there and lots of it's very, very old. But, you know, that's what I started with back then. But in agency terms, you'll often hear about people talking about their book. So, you know, you'll see adverts for like art directors saying, hey, I'm looking for a copywriter to collaborate with. Please send me your book. Um, and that comes from days of yore where people used to carry around a big leather folder with samples of their print work because there was no digital. Um, now, these days, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure many people still go to that extent. I think they would often have their work online. But but, you know, if you are in a classic agency environment, then, you know, you may want to create something that prints off some of your stuff so you can take it along to interviews and things like that. Never have I had a brand, an agency or a small business client ask to see my book. Um, and if anybody ever has said, can I see samples of your work, then I literally pull together a little PDF, which is really straightforward, like a PDF document with a little front sheet that has my branding on it. And in there, there might be like 20 different samples of, of different work. And I just email that off to them. I'll pop it on Dropbox so they can download it. Is that how you do it? Uh, yeah, mine, mine was on my website as well. Um, and anytime I worked with an agency, they were more than happy for me to refer them to my website portfolio and I had screenshots, client names and like a mini case study. And I took screenshots because I used to have links to say the website and then inevitably the website gets edited and it's not your copy anymore or it kind of resembles your copy. So I would always take screenshots of work that had been published and just have a little mini case study, challenge, solution, testimonial. And, you know, I very rarely kind of had interviews with agencies where I would go and take a physical thing. I did have a few and I, I felt I was more confident without paper in my hand <laughs> So I would just always pick, refer people to my online portfolio and I never had any challenges with that. Yeah, I always remember a funny, well, it's actually not that funny. When I um, was at university, I, I used to write for the, the student paper. It's a very well-known student paper at Leeds University. And I used to be features editor there and, and write articles. And, and, and I'd also lay them out as well. Like I would do the typesetting and the graphic design. And back then, I thought I kind of wanted to be a graphic designer. So I went for a job in London. They advertised it in the Guardian newspaper. And it's like, you know, the Guardian newspaper, where you'd look in the media bit and there'd be these amazing jobs. And it was to be like a layout artist for medical journals. I mean, gosh, what was I thinking? But, you know, I just left university. It looked fantastic. It was right in the heart of, I think it was Jermaine Street in, in London, beautiful bit of London. And I, I sent them a couple of examples of my work, like the five things that I've laid out. And then I traveled all the way down to London from Leeds. It cost me a lot of money. I got an outfit, got some new shoes, went into the interview and they said, oh, I mean, we loved your work that you sent through. It's really amazing. Can we see the rest of your book? And I was like, that was it. That's all I've ever done. And their faces just looked at me like I was a complete fool. Do you know what I mean? And I left. 
I didn't get the job and that's why I'm not a graphic designer and that is why I am a copywriter. So there we go, little tale. I'd, all, I'd forgotten that, but it just reminded me of the one time where I wished I'd had a book. So there you go. So, uh, Brooke, a couple options for you there. <laughs> but it doesn't yeah, have to be exactly. complicated and it doesn't have to be super sophisticated unless you are going for big agency face-to-face interviews. Um, the next question we have is from Di Clements um, and Di asks, how do you get over the ask for deposit fear? How do you know how long work will take so you can give a client a realistic timeline? So two questions snuck in there, but they're really crackers. The first one, I would say know that a deposit, asking for a deposit is entirely standard within so many freelance industries. So it shouldn't be a surprise to a client. It's also your process. And you can explain it to clients as that's the way it is. Like, hi, this is how I work. Once you approve the proposal, I'll send through an invoice for 50%. And once that's paid, we can get started. Boom. That's it. Don't feel like you're asking for a deposit. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's it's, it's just a thing. It's just like the next step in the process. And you get to all emotion out of it. Um, honestly, in my time, in all my time, I've never had anybody even question the deposit because I don't kind of do it in a tentative way. It's like, here's my proposal um, and I say in the proposal, and again, I'll include a link to this as well if you don't have it, die. Um, it just says in there, you know, this is how much it's going to cost. This is the, this is what I'm going to do for you. My terms are that I'll send you 50% deposit when we start. I'll send you an invoice. Once that's paid, I'll start work and then you'll, set, you'll get a 50% deposit 14 days after I finish the first draft. Um, and we talked about this on the pricing episode of the process episode i make my second payment based on something i'm doing not something the copywriter not something the client's doing so that's all stated in the proposal and when they sign off the proposal they're already agreeing to the fact that i'm going to send them the invoice and i just immediately send them the invoice straight after with no emotion i've got standard templates that i use for every step it's just like hey here's your deposit as soon as it's paid we can get cracking thank you very much that's it so, yeah, it's just a non-issue. And I really think that no one will have an issue. And anybody who kind of does have an issue, then they kind of don't really get the whole – I fear that they wouldn't really get the whole space. Like deposits are just the thing, you know? Like Yeah, it's a, red, it's a red flag if you're having to have a conversation about getting a deposit. Yes. And you just – if you have to have a conversation, just say, look, it's splitting the risk. You're risking that I'm going to do the job and I'm risking that you're going to pay me the second half. Uh, and it's just standard business pr- practice. It also helps with cash flow. But again, yes, if you have to have that conversation, it is a bit of a red flag because it's just a given. And then yeah. in terms of timelines, um, how do you give a client a realistic timeline? Well, I think that comes from experience um, to some degree. So, you know, we, take a 500 word blog post, you know, day one, you're going to get the brief day, you know, you might start on it. Then day two, you might have another look at it, probably finish it day two, send it to the client, give them a day, two days to look at it, come back to you, a couple of days for you to make amends, go back to them, final sign off, bit of proofing, boom. So a 500 word blog post, look, if you have a really super efficient client, you can get that all done in a day. If you have a, the average client, maybe it'll take a week by the time you've gone back and forth. So I think as always, as we say on this podcast, you really do have to help the client. They don't know. So they hope that you will know. So if you just give them some timings and just give yourself a bit of room to maneuver, because remember, 
you get sick, the typewriter breaks, your kid has to come home from school. So don't make everything so tight that one or two days lost is going to kill you. Um, you know, give yourself some reasonable timing, send it to the client. Most times they'll just agree with the timeline. And if they have any issue with the timeline and go, oh, actually we wanted it a day sooner, then you just maneuver it until you can deliver that. Or you say, I can't deliver a day sooner. And it's as simple as that. What do you think? I think um, experience, as you said, it's it's a short answer and it kind of sucks a bit. You you learn, you know, a, a web page that's that's two hours, but you know it's two hours spread over a week. Because and to be honest, I used to tell every client every job would take two weeks unless it was a really big one. So one web page, five web pages, two weeks. One blog post, two weeks. And what that meant was. Um, because what, what happens is the client goes, yeah, let's get started, and they pay the deposit and you, you take the copywriting brief and everyone's pumped. And that takes, if you're lucky, a couple of days or a day or so. And then um, they wait because you have to send them the brief that you added notes to. And then they take a couple of days because they haven't approved the brief. And all these kind of little trickly things add up. So I always used to set a, a kind of far away date, not, oh, I can get that web page done by tomorrow because clients always tend to take a little bit longer. So I always used to add lots of fat in and then if I could deliver faster, then I would. What that also allowed me to do was slot in other projects. So I would always have three, four, five projects on the go at the same time. So it would allow me to juggle those projects. Yeah, that's it. We've talked about this on the pod before where like you can have like say a couple of medium-sized projects, you know, like 10-page websites kind of trundling along. Then you plot mm. in, an odd, you know, the one-off press release or the 10 social media snippets. And then, you know, maybe you've got an annual report going on, which is going to take six months, you know. So allowing yourself a bit of room allows you to kind of respond to that brief that comes in that needs something just now because you do have a bit of time but I think the general rule of thumb here for both these things is it's really not about uh you know how you do it it's about having the confidence to explain how you do it with the proposal yes just be confident and tell them that that's how it works with the timelines give them some timelines that you feel are and have enough padding that you're not going to be sweaty and again nine times out of ten people will just accept that because you know i've just i'm about to get a front door put on my house and the guy's like well, this is how long it'll take me to check the things and then we make it and then we deliver it i don't go back to him and go no I want you to make that door in two days because I don't know yeah. how long it takes to make a door. I'm just like, cool, dude. I'll, I'll get it done when it gets done, you know? So okay. there you go. Thank you, doorman. Thank you, doorman. Um, so I hope that was helpful. We've, we've actually covered, I think, Lyndall's question a little bit, the initial process, or should we go through that a little bit more? I feel like we've answered that one. Um, one thing I, I guess I would highlight is when you're doing research, like research is a nice way to kind of ease yourself into a project, um, but it's dangerous if you spend too long on it. So I would kind of get a feel for an industry, see some other big hitters, but then I don't like to have too much research in terms of competitive research up my sleeve when I write because I just begin to procrastinate. Yeah. Procrastinate the research. Procrastinate the research. Um I do a little bit, but I often find that I come up with the framework myself. So I come up with some kind of skeleton and then 
like if I get to a point like the client said, we really want to talk about this aspect and I really don't feel I have enough information, then I go and do research for that little bit. So I might look at some competitors or do some reading so that I can fill out that little bit. Um, because obviously the more you look at competitors, the more it tends to end up sounding like competitors. And those, dread- yeah, that's right. those dreaded clients that come along and say, I pretty much just want it to be like this site. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, but we all obviously look at competitors. That's a great starting point. But yeah, I'm somebody who researches kind of iteratively as I go along to fill gaps rather than sitting and doing five hours of research before I even start because I get bored with research. I find research quite boring. So yeah, absolutely. Um, Liz asks, what's the best way to showcase work you did as a subcontractor? Which is a really good question. Um, For me, I think it's good to get permission first. I don't think, well, in my terms and conditions, I always had that I could use the work um, that I did in my portfolio. But I think it's a, a professional courtesy to make sure that the person who's who's outsourced the work to you um, or that you're working in partnership with is okay with you publishing it. And generally what you can do is just say this work was completed in conjunction with business name or the person who gave me the job and I think that labels it as a partnership um, but it doesn't make it too over the top. Yeah I think again it depends on not necessarily just your terms and conditions but whatever contract you've signed so as I said I'll I'll pop in the subcontracting agreement you can have a look at that in that agreement um, it is you cannot use the work afterwards on your own site so if you sign that agreement then you can't use it um often if you're subcontracting to a copywriter they don't want that known you know you are writing as them so you definitely shouldn't use it obviously if you're subcontracting to a web developer or a designer they're probably going to be cool with it agencies are often cool with it too they don't they don't really care um but yes just ask um, and be polite. And uh, yeah, I think once you've done it, whether you choose to have that that sentence or not, I don't. I don't know if I've ever had that sentence. If it, if the person's given me permission, and said, "Hey, how about how about it? Add it to your showcase." I've just put it on and not gone. I did it in conjunction with anybody. Um, so yeah, up to you really. But always ask permission and check whatever legal document you have signed. Um, and Liz Green asks another question here Um, challenges we had in our early days how you overcame them and how they led to the next stage I'm so sorry there is literally can you hear that there is somebody like throwing themselves against the fence (laughs) why why does it all happen to me it's always quiet and calm where you are and where I am there's nutters nutters everywhere so that's one of my big challenges Liz Um, but in terms of the early days um I guess, gosh, so many challenges in the early days. The first was like, where is my next job going to come from? And, you know, am I going to make enough money to keep doing this and feed my family? So I was very hand to mouth when I started and, you know, learned a lot about cash flow and charging deposits because otherwise I wouldn't have eaten. Um, And then after that, it was all about processes. You do seem to have the same problems again and again, the same stumbling blocks where things don't work and that's how I developed all the templates that I now sell some of them are borrowed from agency days and converted but pretty much I have a document with my email templates in it because I was writing the same emails again and again and getting quite emotional about the emails you know that person who hasn't paid or the person who said they would deliver the amends and I scheduled the time and that they haven't come 
and you spend hours agonizing over how to write that email. But once it's happened six times, it's like just develop a standard email and then just send it without emotion. So yeah, a lot of it just comes from having a hideous experience <laughs> of one form or another, taking a step back and giving yourself a little bit of time with those nice extended schedules we talked about to go rather than just lurching on to the next mistake or the next thing, stopping and going, why did this happen? And really looking at why you got into that icky situation with a client and taking ownership of what you did to make it happen. Because usually it is 50, 50, you know, the client didn't deliver the amends because you weren't clear enough that that was their do or die time. You know, your email wasn't clear enough or you didn't give them a timeline or you didn't chase them up. You, you know, take on what your own responsibilities are and then create something that means that next time you know how to deal with the issue. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That's exactly how I've approached the last X number of years of copywriting as well. I have to say, I think in the start, I was blindly optimistic about my future. So confidence and comparing my success and stuff like that wasn't a big issue. Um, so I didn't really experience self-doubt about this being the wrong thing for me. I was blindly optimistic. But where I failed was I didn't know how to run a business. So, you know, I had some good cracks at it. But like you, Kate, slip-ups would happen. Like I would quote too small and I'd be like, okay, I need, a, I need to make a quote bigger for that kind of project. Or I wouldn't get the deposit and I'd be so excited about getting started that I would just continue and it would all go tits up. Or I would continue on a project kind of flogging a dead horse when I had lots of warning signs that the client was a bit of a knob. So each time those things happened, I would look at my processes and go, right, how can I stop this happening again? And it would happen again, but that would help me tighten things up over and over. Thank you to all the knobs for helping us improve our process. Thank you, knobs everywhere. Well, that's it. What a great, what a great note to end on. We're ending on knobs. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, you got if you have a good mindset and you can look to fix it, um, it'll just strengthen the service you deliver. So, yes. Moving on from nods, uh, let's let's wrap it up. So regular listeners know that this is when we read out a review of the show. And today we're giving a shout out to Emma Rose Bell from the UK. She says, hot copy is my little pep talk. Kate and Belinda's helpful tips and peppy delivery motivate me to keep moving forward as a newbie copywriter. Keep on pepping, ladies. She didn't say woo. I added the woo. Um, and thank you for listening as well. If you like the show, don't forget to leave us a rating review on iTunes and Stitcher. We give you a shout out on the show and your review helps others find us. Um, you can also, of course, head to hotcopypodcast.com and leave us some comments. Happy writing, everyone. Thanks for listening right to the end. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy my two other podcasts. I have one called The Recipe for SEO Success, which is all about SEO tips, advice, and helping you grapple the Google beast. And my other, The Confessions of a Misfit Entrepreneur, which is all about dealing with the stresses of running your own business. You can find both of them on iTunes and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You just delete that one. That's cool because I'm going to Jamaica next week. Oh, really? Yeah, it's playing in San Francisco. I love Jamaica.